It's always heartening for a speaker to see a bunch of people at the second talk. <laughs> well, they came back. Father in heaven, we commit this time to you also. Please watch over us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to uh, talk about the peril of infant baptism. We talked a little bit about the promise of it, what, why I'm, uh, what the theological undergirding is for my uh, commitment to pay to baptism. And I, well, welcome to Idaho, land of famous pedos. Right. <laughs> Working on the license plate. All right, so, uh, so I've given the sort of the the theological framework uh, for it, and then of course we can get into particular baptism uh, passages of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and you know we can go into those areas uh, later. But I'm interested more in the structure, the structure of the covenant. And structurally, I believe that we have great promises concerning the covenant. I'm going to be talking about the peril of infant baptism. But before, uh, before getting into the peril of infant baptism, I want to, ta- I want to address uh, a possible uh, objection or question. Well, if, if, if it is as perilous as all that, uh, and if you're going to convince me of how perilous it is, and it is uh, perilous, why risk it? What's the what's the benefit? What, you know, why why bother? Why risk it? What, uh, what does it mat? Does it really matter? Uh, and I think it I think it does. And I'll illustrate this with a uh, uh, something that happened to me back years ago when I was. When I was still a Baptist, and I was I was traveling one time speaking, and I was in New England, uh, Mass- I was on Cape Cod, and I was doing a homestay. I, I was speaking for a conference or something, and and I was put up. Uh, the home where I was put up was uh, a, an elderly, uh, probably younger than I am now, but <laughs> <laughs> seemed elderly at the time. <laughs> they seemed ancient. Um, they seemed like seasoned, weathered Christians, and I, I was talking to them, and I, I had uh, a, a time where I was able to minister to them. They'd had some struggles with uh, one of their kids, I think, and, and they, so I gave them some, uh, gave them some uh, counsel ab- about that, and I was very much in the position of a young preacher, a, a young pastor, giving pastoral advice about family and about grown kids to an older, uh, uh, an older couple. And I think what I told them was uh, reasonable, right, biblical, and so on. But there was sort of a, I was the teacher, I was the teacher, and although they were older than I was, I was teaching them, I was instructing them. And that's, that's how it felt to me. And this was all the setup for something completely different that happened. Um, I think it was may have been that evening at dinner or the next morning at breakfast, I'm not sure, but when uh, we came down, I'd get, had this time of counseling with them already, giving them some input, and, uh, and then before we ate, he said, the head of the household said, Grace, he prayed. And when he prayed, the sensation, and I was completely unprepared for it, um, it the sensation was like someone opened an oven door that was like, 400 degrees in there, and I was hit in the face with 400 years of covenant faithfulness. 
right? So he wasn't, he was praying in a stream. His parents were reformed and his grandparents were reformed and, you know, back, back into the Netherlands. And they were, they were just, and this was hundreds of years of covenantal faithfulness. It was, and it was, and it was, it wasn't like I was projecting because I was just, you know, ready for my bacon or whatever it was. Uh, I was just, well, we're going to say grace. And he said grace. And it was like, whoa. And I, and I could feel the centuries, right? There, there is a, when, when God says that he visits um, uh, iniquity to three and fourth, three and four generations, um, when he says that, he is, he is limiting the damages. He is, this is a, an act of mercy. Extending iniquity of three and four generations is a cutoff point. It's a statute of limitations. It's not, look how vindictive I can be. I can go to three or even four, because what's the contrast? To thousands who love me and keep covenant. To thousands of what generations? This is thousands of generations. So uh, more on that uh, in my talk uh, tomorrow. But it, God is interested in generations. God loves your great-grandchildren. God loves your great-grandchildren, and you want to love them also. And one of the best ways I can love my great-great-grandchildren, whom I, whom I will not meet until the resurrection, is by loving my one connection to them, which is my kids and my grandkids. I do know them, and I do know how to... Uh, function in terms of the covenant with the people that I love downstream so that, so that I can see the, God's covenantal faithfulness operating as a force multiplier. Uh, so I see my three kids and my 17 grandkids, and I see something starting. My parents were first-generation Christians. My uh, grandchildren are downstream from that, one, two, three, four. They're fourth generation. And there is a, an enormous uh, blessing of, I think, gospel covenantal potency when people understand the covenant promises and are walking in them. Now, that said, it's, an high, it's a high-wire act. There are perils. When Baptists warn paedo-Baptists about the perils, they are not making things up. The Bible is full of warnings against covenant presumption. People who say, well, um, we own this place. This is our temple. This is our worship. This, you know. And God says, who required of you this trampling of my courts? Who told you that I wanted to listen to your music? Who, who told me, who, who told you that I wanted you to slaughter bulls and goats? Sacrifices and burnt offerings uh, God did not require, but a humble and a contrite heart. So why did we, how did we get the idea that he did require uh, sacrifices and burnt offerings? Well, number one, he said he did. Right? It's in the text. But number two is that we're just reading the surface of the text. God says, Jesus says to the Pharisees, go and find out what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Go find out what that means. Well, God required mercy and sacrifice. But sometimes the Old Testament prophets would put it hyperbolically, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Sacrifices and burnt offerings you did not require, but a humble and contrite uh, heart. To obey is better than sacrifice, um, we get from Samuel. So, the peril, the promise, uh, the promise, the privilege, and the peril, uh, all of this goes together. It's all part of the same framework. 
covenant living is living in terms of God's blessings and curse. God's blessings and curses. A covenant living is learning to function in a Deuteronomic way. So, those who object to infant baptism because of the invitation it presents to nominalism and presumption really do have a strong argument when it comes to things they can point to. Uh, and, well, I grew up in a church where they did that and everybody was, uh, everybody was saved because they, uh, because they were baptized in infancy and that's just ridiculous. As opposed to the revivalist tradition where everybody's saved because they walked down to the front of the church and signed a little card with a stubby pencil. Right? At least in the Pado-Baptist churches, you have water. You have something that resembles something in the Bible. The little card and the stubby pencil are not in the Bible anywhere. <laughs> or throwing the pine cone into the fire the last night of youth camp. That's a, that, why are you saved? Well, through the pine cone. If circumcision was the precursor to baptism, as Pado-Baptists like to argue, then the temptations that come with circumcision will also necessarily come with infant baptism. That is, if we Pado-Baptists are right, and there is a, a connection between circumcision and baptism, then we should anticipate the same temptations coming. We should anticipate the temptations that arose with circumcision being temptations that arise with baptism also. Now briefly, this came up in uh, a question in the break. Let me just quickly uh, outline the structure here before we go on. Um, in the Old Testament, we, uh, in the Scripture, we know that physical circumcision was a representation of spiritual circumcision. Right? So Deuteronomy 10 says, circumcise your hearts. Right? So I want the real thing. Uh, Romans 2 says, a true Jew is one who is circumcised inwardly. Circumcision is of the heart by the Spirit. So true circumcision is, spirit, is regeneration. And physical circumcision was intended to represent that. So I'm going to have a square here. Physical, uh, physical circumcision, straight line down to spiritual circumcision. Okay? Physical baptism, spiritual baptism, same deal. So when, when Peter is preaching uh, to Cornelius and the Holy Spirit comes on all the uh, people in the house there, spiritual baptism, and then Peter says, who is to forbid water, seeing that they've been baptized in the Spirit? All right, so you have physical baptism pointing at spiritual baptism. You have physical circumcision pointing at spiritual circumcision. I've got two lines running straight down. Now, at the base, you have Colossians 2.11, where we are told um, that you are, you've received a circumcision made without hands, spiritual circumcision, having been buried with him in baptism. So I take that as spiritual baptism and spiritual circumcision. It's spiritual circumcision because it's done without hands, so it's the base here, and uh, having been buried with him in baptism, your alternative to say is to say that spiritual circumcision is accomplished by physical baptism, which I deny, so I want to connect the, the base here. So Physical circumcision, spiritual circumcision, physical baptism, spiritual baptism. Spiritual baptism and spiritual circumcision are uh, compared to one another in Colossians 2.11. Now I've got a U. Why can't I have a square? Why can't I connect physical baptism and physical circumcision? 
Well, I, I would argue that you can, that we should. All right, so when we do, if we, if we close, that circ- that close that square off and we make it a square, then we're going to be functioning um, the way the Jews were with a physical, um, with a physical sacramental badge of our inclusion in Christ. And when we have that physical rite that we go through, we're going to be tempted in the same ways that the Jews were tempted. So here's the continuity. The, the Apostle Paul tells the Roman churches, as we covered in the first talk, he tells the Roman church not to fall into presumption the same way the Jews did, uh, Romans eleven eighteen. And so it will not do to answer the Baptists by maintaining that infant baptism presents no temptation to such presumption at all. If the pedos were to respond, well, we don't have to worry about that because we're Christians, what we're doing is we're abandoning the foundation of our entire argument. Our entire argument depends upon there being a parallel between circumcision and baptism, and if there's a parallel, there's a parallel in the temptations that come with it. So if it were true that, there, that we don't need to worry about these temptations, then the biblical argument, the biblical argument for paedobaptism would collapse. So I'm presenting what I regard as the biblical argument for it, not the traditional argument for it. In other words, we shouldn't baptize babies because babies are cute. We shouldn't baptize babies because uh, uh, the Roman Catholic Church has been doing it for centuries. Th- those aren't biblical reasons. We can't just be on autopilot. One of my favorite John Gerstner stories, who was a Presbyterian, Presbyterian theologian, he was uh, on the road one time and uh, they were, uh, and he was pr- going to be preaching for this church and they said, uh, they approached him before and said, we're having an infant baptism this morning and would you be, our custom is to ask a visiting pastor if he's willing to conduct the baptism. And Gerstner said, sure, I'll do that. So they took him down to the font and were checking him out on the, everything that they had there. And there was a white rose there. And what's this for? And they said, well, it's our custom to dip the white rose in the water and sprinkle the baby with the water off the white rose. And what does the white rose symbolize? Well, it symbolizes the innocence of the child. And Gerstner said, oh, what's the water for? (laughs) Why don't we just sprinkle white rose petals on the child? Um, In other words, we're dealing with uh, the, the, the problem that we have is one of radical sinfulness in the human race. And the only thing that addresses that is, is gospel. And when we, when we congregate in churches, our constant temptation is going to be to forget the gospel and to start trusting in steeples and pews and psalters and generations and statements of faith and rites. And so the, our temptation will be to get distracted by these things. So if this is a biblical argument at all, and I, su- I submit that it is a preeminently biblical argument, we can count on being tempted the same way the Jews were tempted. It will not do to say that the new covenant has full continuity when it comes to the privileges of the covenant and no continuity at all when it comes to the responsibilities. You can't argue that way. God doesn't function that way. If you say, well, we have all the privileges that the Jews had and none of the responsibilities, that's just asking for trouble. You're you're going to get a, a bad, toxic mix if you do that. Now, 
After baptism has taken place, everything else that follows is part of Christian discipleship. After baptism has taken place, everything that follows is Christian discipleship. Teaching the baptized to obey all that Christ has commanded. That's what he gave in the Great Commission. Disciple the nations, that's the imperative. Disciple the nations, how do we do that? Baptizing them, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. So we baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching obedience. So the pattern is go disciple the nations, make disciples. The first step in making disciples is baptizing them in the triune name. And having baptized them in the triune name, what you do following up after that is you teach obedience. So when you, are, uh, when you have had your uh, child baptized, you are enrolling them in your 18-year-long Bible school curriculum because you're now a disciple. You're, you're now uh, the mark of Jesus Christ is on you, and you are answerable to him. You're accountable to him. So after baptism has taken place, everything else that follows is part of Christian discipleship, teaching everything Jesus commanded. Discipleship is irreducibly a matter of learning obedience. It's not a matter of theological test-taking or test-passing. Now, with the one qualifier, when uh, passing the test or taking the test is what God, Jesus tells you to do, then it is. You know, obeying, taking the test is what he requires. But I'm talking primarily about the ethical response, not a cognitive response. An ethical response, not a cognitive one. Now, cognitive responses are part of our ethical responsibilities, but you can't just reduce it to propositional assent. Yes, I know, I've, I've heard it before. Um, uh, when, people, um, when people are uh, being taught, they ought, they ought not to be... Um, they ought not to treat catechisms as though it's a put the nickel in, you know, what is the chief end of man or what is your only hope in life and in death. If you just put the nickel in and you just uh, uh, give, give the person your paternosters, you know, Roman Catholics do their Hail Marys, their pat paternosters, and we, we give our catechetical response. I'm a big fan of catechism, but it's got, it cannot be on autopilot. It's got to be... Uh, an ethical response. So a certain cognitive element is necessarily present, and it obviously grows over time. But the first thing you must be after is a willingness and eagerness in the disciple to be accepted, grown, taught, and disciplined. That's what, the, that's what a disciple is. If a disciple is rejecting, rebelling against, fighting all, all of this, then you're not, you're not at stage one of discipleship uh, at all. So, what is the point of communing a child, you know, baptizing and then bringing them into the church and then growing them up? What is the point of communing a child if that child is not growing up into righteousness, peace, and joy? The kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy. Romans 14, 17. Why, why would a minister of Christ want to give children little damnation wafers? <laughs> I mean, this is, you, you, you Presbyterians can't talk covenant because, and, and act as though, uh, and then retreat to a unilateral covenant whenever it suits you. Because the Deuteronomic promises are blessings for obedience 
and curses for disobedience. And this is by saying obedience, I'm not talking about works or works righteousness, because obedience, what is the work of God? The work of God is to believe the one he has sent. So we, we believe God. That's what, that's what our obedience is. Trusting him, believing him. And your discipleship of your, of your children is to teach them to trust, teach them to believe. You're not, you're not teaching them to pedal harder. You're not teaching them to grit their teeth and try, try, try. You are, you are teaching your children to trust. You're teaching your children to rest. And if they don't, then what, what's happening is this. If, if a child does not uh, believe in Jesus with God-given evangelical repentance and faith, if that's not happening, then a Christian upbringing is the worst thing that could happen to them. Shall I say that again? If they don't come to true faith, then what you're doing is you're, you're simply giving them more truth to be accountable to God for rejecting. Right? To whom much is given, much is required. To whom much is given, if they use it, if they respond to it properly, to whom much is given, they've been given much. If they walked away from it, then they are going to be held accountable for much. You can't, uh, you can't ratchet it up in one area and then ratchet it down in the other. So, a minister of Christ would not want to give increased condemnation to covenant children. The fact that it is a, the fact that it is a cup of blessing. Now, some some of you are going to think I don't like this idea of Deuteronomic blessings and curses because that sounds so Old Testamenty. But the Old Testament is not the word of God emeritus. It's not the word of God put out to pasture. All these things are written for us so that for the word of God is good for instruction, training in righteousness, and so on. And, and when you consider what the New Testament says, this is one of those places where we have parallels again and not contrasts. Um, what does Paul call the cup of the Lord's table in Corinthians? He says, he calls it the cup of blessing, right? This is the cup of blessing. A minister can pick up the cup on the table and say to the people of God, this is the cup of blessing, and what says some heckling Corinthian from the back row says, and what happens if I get drunk on it? What happens if I withhold it from my brother? Then you die. Some of you are sick and some of you have died. Why have you died? Because of how you handled the cup of blessing. Now, we don't call it the cup of blessing and cursing. The name of the cup is the cup of blessing. That's what it is. It's the cup of blessing. But when blessings are abused, what do they become? When covenant blessings are abused, what do they become? They become curses. All right? Here's another way of thinking it. Maybe Uzzah was struck down for touching the mercy seat that we don't know where on the Ark of the Covenant he grabbed when the oxen stumbled, but he reached back to steady the Ark. Maybe Uzzah was struck down for touching the mercy seat. Do you think that's incongruous? Those who practice child communion built on infant baptism therefore are running the risk of incurring one of the Lord's most fearful curses. Having a millstone tied around your neck. Better to have a millstone tied around your neck uh, 
and thrown into the depth of the sea than to stumble a little one. Now, before I, kept, before I came to accept the need for covenant communion, we're talking about um, these things as something of a package. Uh, uh, at Christ Church, we don't practice what I would call infant communion. We don't, if a baby's three weeks old in the car seat, conked out, we don't wake them up to give them elements of the Lord's Supper. But we do practice child communion. So if a child is baptized uh, and they're sitting up with their parents saying amen at the appropriate places and, and tracking with the service and raising their hands in the Gloria Patri and they're doing all these things and they notice the tray going by, we don't want them to learn the lesson that you're excluded. Mommy, Daddy, I love Jesus. No, you don't. Oh, I thought I did. Um, but Mom and Dad, you know better than I which is your first mistake, kid, <laughs> right? Uh, th- think about it for a minute. We're, parents, are, we, parents are called to teach their children to believe. Your job is not to get your children to doubt. That's not your job. Mom, Dad, I love Jesus. I don't think so. I don't think so. Let's, let's give it another couple years. We'll, we'll run you through a battery of tests. Okay, may, I hope I pass the test next time in this religion of grace that I've been born into. <laughs> I'll tell you who's failing the test, right? Um, so ba- basically, what you, want, what you want to do is teach your children to trust. Your, your job is to teach them to believe the promises of God from the heart, not just say that they believe the promises of God, but to actually trust them, to actually know in their bones that they are a child of God and that they are accepted in Jesus Christ. So, um, before I came to understand um, uh, the need for child communion, one of my stated concerns was that those who commune children might confound things when a child's sullenness, bad attitude, resistance to a life of joy, etc., began to be clearly manifest to everybody. Here's the body of Christ, Billy. No, I don't want it. You know, that's a bad scene during the... That would be the signal for the objectivists to rush to his defense anyway. Well, it doesn't matter that he's rebellious and sullen and defiant and unbelieving. Well, it does too matter. You can't... Uh, your, your job is to train your children in the covenant and the privileges and the blessings and the responsibilities that, uh, that come with it. So, such would separate the privileges of discipleship from the responsibilities of discipleship. That way lies presumption. That's what causes presumption. My privileges are good. My responsibilities may vary. Right? That's what presumption is. My responsibilities come and go. My responsibilities are things that I adjust according to my uh, predilections. Um, But the privileges, God promised them all. That's the way of presumption, and and that was the sin that the Apostle Paul expressly warned those of us with a high sacramentology about. That's Romans 11, 18 through 20 again. You don't support the root, Mr. Sacrament Man. The root supports you. And if you maintain your connection to the root, the apostle went on to say, by internalizing in your disposition, in your soul, in your joy, whatever the larger catechism has to say about justifying faith. So uh, what is faith like? And and what has the Reformed faith, what has the Reformed tradition said about justifying faith? 
Westminster Larger Catechism 72, you can look it up. Those things ought to be internalized. So when, when you, uh, Spurgeon said of Bunyan that if you cut him anywhere, his blood would run bibline. He, Bunyan would bleed Bible verses. We need, to, we need to bleed covenant promises. We need to understand that God is good to his people, and he's not just good to you, and I don't know about your kids. He's good to you, and he's good to your kids. He loves you, he loves your kids, and he loves your grandkids. He loves your grandkids more than you do. So, there are two opposite problems. Our Baptist brothers see the problem. They see the, the temptation of presumption. And I, th- and I think they see it often very accurately. They see the problem, but in my view, they want to uproot the tares before it is time. They wind up damaging the wheat. The master said, no, let the tares grow. There's going to be hypocrites. Are there hypocrites memorizing their catechism? Yeah. Are there hypocrites growing up in faithful churches, taking the bread and the wine? Yeah. Are there hypocrites memorizing psalms? Yeah. What should we do? What should we do? Let them. (laughs) What is that to you? Right? If, you're, if you're the pastor and you believe that there are tares growing in your field, and I can assure you that there are, right? you believe that there are tares growing in your field, one of the things you're forbidden to do is uproot them prematurely. You're not allowed. Right? And our temptation, particularly since reform types are precisionists, frequently theologically precise, and they're precisionists, and... Our Baptist brothers can give way to an an additional layer of precision. Sometimes you can find yourself uprooting tares for the light and transient uh, causes, and and you're doing more damage to the wheat than you are doing damage to the tares. So that's that's one mistake veering in one direction. The sacramentalists, the not the... The people who sort of drift are who adopted the Roman Catholic faith in the sacraments, ex opere operato, in the work working, it just grace is imparted the way water comes through a garden hose or the way electricity runs through a, a cable. Um, the people who say grace is just imparted, they're creating another problem. Right? Like if, um, where they're too careless about everything growing up together. Uh, until eventually, like the Episcopal Church, they think that morning glory is wheat. Or they think that, oh, look at this Canadian thistle that's this tall. What a fine specimen of wheat. That's not wheat, you say, but it identifies as wheat. (laughs) This is why Episcopalians can't play chess anymore. They, They can't tell the difference between a bishop and a queen. So why shouldn't we ordain this morning glory as a bishop? His relationship with the ragweed is a mutually affirming and caring relationship. So there are people who deck all, uh, I've seen, you know, you've seen pictures floating by, outrage pictures floating by, and it really is an outrage, you know, assorted ecclesiastical officials uh, uh, blessing abortion procedures or, or dedicating a Planned Parenthood thing. So here's the question. How do people get there? How do people get there? I'll tell you how they get there. It's covenant presumption, right? 
My position is secure. I'm in the church. I'm baptized. My papers are good. My papers are, are in order, as though the kingdom of God were like a thoroughbred line of Labrador retrievers. And if your papers are in order, there's nothing, you know, that's all it is. Well, on the one hand, you've got people who are hyper about not letting uh, the wrong kind of person in, and other people who are hyper about letting absolutely anybody in except for the people who believe the Bible, right? We'll let, we'll let anyone in. I'm fond of, I believe that there are Presbyterian churches, covenantal churches that are zealous for the purity of the church. And there are Baptist churches that are zealous for the purity of the church. But there are two different modes of preserving that unity. Um, compare the church, just as a manner of speaking, I'm out of my mind to talk like this, as Paul would say, but the church is like a nightclub. It's a quality nightclub, it's a happening nightclub, but you want it to be a Tony nightclub and not a sleazy dive, right? So you're the owner of the nightclub and you want, you want, to keep it, you want it to be a nice joint. Well, there's two, ways of, there's two ways of going about this. There's the Baptist way and the uh, Pado-Baptist way. There's the Baptist way of having a nice nightclub and there's a Presbyterian way of having a nice nightclub. The Baptist way is to hire uh, thorough um, security checkpoint guards checking everybody's ID before you let them in. Nobody comes in unless they check out. Right? If you, I, you've got your passport and you've got your ID and you've got your papers, you've got a letter of refer, uh, a reference letter from your boss and you've got, we, we check you out and then in you go. You can come in if you clear the checkpoint. So that's how Baptists keep a nice joint. The Presbyterian way of keeping a nice joint is to hire big bouncers. So security guards at the gate, you can't come in unless you, unless you check out. And the Presbyterian way is to let anybody in and then th throw them out if they act up. Right, so bouncers versus security guards. Now, both can have churches that are God-honoring churches, but I'm more concerned... I'm. I'm more concerned about excluding someone who ought to be in than I'm worried about including someone who shouldn't be. Right, do you see that? Uh, if someone says, so-and-so is a pagan and he joined your church, he, he decided that church is, church is where all the cute girls are and he wants to sell insurance, and so he joined your church because your church is a happening place, he found out what the code word was, and he believed in Jesus, and you baptized him, and he's there. Does that bother you? Well. Yeah, it bothers me. He shouldn't be doing that. But I believe the pulpit is the place of climate control in the church. I believe the pulpit is a place where you can make a climate that's not conducive to unbelief. Right? Anywhere in the congregation. And people will part of your job is to get the right people to leave. You might say, Amen. And you say to yourself, I'm doing good. <laughs> You want the right people to stay also. You want the right people to stay. Oh, that too. All right. So we always have to distinguish the sheep and the goats. We have to distinguish the tares and the wheat. We have to, and we want to, we want to have a wheat field that's recognizably wheat and that's mostly wheat, but you have to account for the presence of the tares. Now, someone's going to say, if you baptize children, if, if you baptize children, you're going to have lots and lots of Tears. Now, in our experience, it, at, um, our experience at Christ Church, and we've been baptizing uh, children, baptizing infants for 20 plus years. Uh, 
Um, that's not been our experience. We've, we've, we have many, many children. I've got some uh, numbers that I'm going to go into my talk uh, tomorrow where um, we're just very heartened. If, if, the, if you approach it with the bouncers and you practice church discipline and you summon people to uh, true obedience and faith and you're preaching the word of God, I believe that you can see a healthy community of Christians. So what I'm after is an institutional church with an evangelical heart. An institutional church with an evangelical heart. I'm at war with false dichotomies. It need not be sectarian to be evangelical, and it need not be formalist to be a church instead of a sect. That said, communing children from a very young age, baptizing them and bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, which is what we're told to do, is not necessarily a road to formalism. It's a road to formalism if you don't heed the warnings. Right? Do you see that? If you do heed the warnings, it is the road, it's the path to godly maturity that stands head and shoulders over the anemic and truncated idea of evangelicalism that we have today. All right, do you see that? If it goes wrong, it goes very, very wrong. But if it goes right, you're, you're going to be training up um, uh, warriors. You're going to be training up formidable Christians. So, communing children, baptizing children, communing them from a very young age is not necessarily the road to formalism, but it's a good way to get there if you want to get there, um, if you want to ignore the warnings. So it's not Gnostic, pastorally, uh, to insist on an integrated life, where one where the inner man and the outer man increasingly line up over time. It's not Gnostic to shepherd little children whom Christ has welcomed, teaching and urging them to live faithfully as disciples, for that is what they are. Right? Um, how many times have Christian parents said, oh, no, my little Billy told a lie. I thought this was a Christian home. And you think, do you sin? Do I sin? Why are we so dis dismayed at Billy's sin? We think our sin's normal, and we confess it every week when we go to church, and Billy pulls one stinker, and, we're, and, we, and we question his salvation, and we, no, you need to teach him the word of God, discipline him accordingly, walk him through the process, and teach him to, to love Jesus and love the standard, embrace the standard from the heart. As real disciples, they, because they are real disciples, one of the foundational things they must learn is the lesson which Nicodemus had somehow missed. You must be born again. You must be born again. Wanting covenant children to grow up enjoying the blessing of God in practice and not just on paper is the commanded blending of earthly and heavenly, inner and outer, heart and body, physical and spiritual. Now, one other, uh, an important thing I just emphasized, your children, if you want your children to be present with you in the resurrection, if you want your children to enjoy eternal life, they must be born again. But that's a very different thing from saying, and I infallibly know the signs and indicators of when that has happened. Right. That's a very different proposition. Everyone here knows that the sun is up. You can just look outside and see the sun is up. Not one of you here, I dare say, knows when it rose. 
You don't need to know the precise moment the sun rose to know that it's up. And covenant children don't need to know when, were they regenerate in the womb like John the Baptist? Were they regenerate three weeks after they were born? Were they regenerated when they were uh, five years old? Were they regenerated at youth camp? You know, if they're regenerated very early, we don't know. But can you tell if the sun's up? Yeah. Do they love Jesus? Do they love worshiping with his people? Do they love the word of God? Do they love to be corrected and established and trained in righteousness? Do, do they take to that? Is it natural? Or do they fight it every chance they get? Do they resist it every chance they get? If you have a child who is hostile, sullen, resistant to everything spiritual, then you need to be praying for their conversion. Right? You need to be praying for a heart conversion. But you shouldn't be praying for a heart conversion simply because you didn't hear the angels singing when they were regenerated. You're not, you're not going to. God has the sunrise in many lives without us knowing the precise moment, the precise time. I've talked to adults who went through that process. When were you converted? Well, it was sometime in an eight-month span in 1975, somewhere between here and here. I believe I crossed from death to life. I know from the Bible that I had to have crossed from death to life. I know that I was dead. In 1970, I was dead. In 1980, I wasn't dead anymore. And I know that I crossed that, that boundary line sometime. But I don't have to know the precise moment that it happened. I just have to know that I can see because the sun's up. That, that's, that's what we're after. So you want children, you want covenant children who love Jesus. You want covenant children who love Jesus and who are being trained by their parents who are learning to love Jesus more and more, to love Jesus more and more. Our Father and God, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for all these things that you've given us. I pray that you'd help us as we meditate on them further. In Jesus' name, and amen.